0: Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Brian.
1: I'm Shiv, and today we are thrilled to have Thomas Chatterton-Williams with us. Mr. Williams is a contributor-writer at the New York Times. His work has also appeared in the New Yorker, Harper's, and the London Review of Books. He earned his bachelor's degree in philosophy from Georgetown University before graduating from New York University for his master's in cultural reporting and criticism. In 2007, he wrote an op-ed titled Yes, Blame Hip-Hop for the Washington Post, which ended up breaking records for comments posted on a single article. He is also the author of Losing My Cool, a memoir that speaks to the role hip-hop plays in authenticating the acceptable blackness that is allowed for people. He is a 2019 New American Fellow and the recipient of a Berlin Prize. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Williams.
0: To get started, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us?
2: Sure, um, in 2011, I moved uh, from Brooklyn to Paris with my wife, who's, who's French, and um, I had been living off of the remains of the advance I got for my first book, Losing My Cool, and um, working on a novel, and I had been working on that novel for about, it was coming into year three. I had been going through draft after draft with my agent, and um, <laughs> I just, it never was quite working out for me when my wife told me that she was pregnant. And, um, and, and, and I really had to think about, you know, how will, I, how will I have a career and how will I provide for my, my daughter uh, when she's born? And so it was the hardest thing to do, but I, I actually, I threw away the novel, I sh- or I threw it in my drawer and I never, um, uh, I worked it out for three years and never got, got a dollar out of it. But then I really, at that moment, I pivoted to journalism and made a real effort to, to be a magazine writer as well as a, as well as to go back to nonfiction writing um, in book form. And so that actually was the toughest thing to do was to admit to myself that <clears throat> that novel wasn't going to happen, but it was also the best, the best thing for my career to advance.
1: Going through your work, uh, one thing I noticed was that education has been a, a recurring point. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about your education. You got a bachelor's degree in philosophy. What drew you to philosophy?
2: um my father initially incepted that idea in my mind um he would always say you know what do you think about this and we would have a conversation kind of very socratic Mm -hmm. um, dialogue um situation going on in my house at all times uh very informal questioning but but actually pretty rigorous um and he'd say well you're doing philosophy and um i never really understood what he meant but once i got to school Um, I pre-declared as an econ and finance major just because I knew nothing about those fields, but I knew that people said you do that and you make a lot of money Mm -hmm. at a a bank or something. Um, But I did miserably in those classes. I I was getting terrible grades uh, my freshman year. And sophomore year, I had to take an ethics class um, in the philosophy department for my requirement, and I just fell in love with the subject matter. And I realized that actually, um, you know, what my father was telling me – was already my metier, actually was what I felt um, like allowed me to flourish in school. And so once I switched my major to philosophy, um, the grades changed too. And so it kind of took care of itself that way. I just wasn't good enough at economics. <laughs> <laughs> so when you decided
0: to major in philosophy, did you ever see yourself getting your master's right out of college? Or was it something that fell into place? And why did you end up choosing cultural reporting and criticism as your focus?
2: I mean, a lot of things, um, you have so many plans when you're young, which is very good, but a lot of what you end up doing um, happens in unplanned ways. And so mm-hmm. I, You know, when I was studying philosophy, you always, whenever you're studying whatever your majors, you probably entertain uh, uh, the idea of getting a PhD in that field, and, and I did. But um, I remember I had this conversation with one of my favorite philosophy professors, and, and he said, you know, if you want to be a writer, you have to think, hard about whether you really want to go into academic philosophy, because it can be very frustrating. Um, You can do a lot of work, and you can really know a lot about a subject, and you will have very few readers, Um, almost guaranteed that you'll have very few readers, so you have to decide whether you want to be read or not, and I kind of thought about that, and um, in any event, I didn't really have, um, I didn't have a clear plan when I graduated. It was in the middle of a bad recession, and 2003 and I had a French girlfriend and I decided to move to France for a year and to, to, to figure things out <laughs> teaching English um, and when that year was up my father said you need to come back <laughs> to the States and you need to get a job um, and I decided I would apply to law school and I would work as a paralegal um, for the year mm-hmm. while I was waiting for my applications and that that year which ended up becoming two years in a Manhattan law firm was so terrible um, that, I, that I really realized it. I needed to try to do the writing thing, but I wasn't going to go get a philosophy PhD. So um, I applied to a couple of grad programs, and, and the, the one at NYU really fit my interests the most. It, it, it was journalism, but it was really focused on literary criticism and essay writing, and personal essay. And uh, and and it's just, there's there's wonderful faculty there. So that I applied and got a fellowship, and that kind of took care of itself too. Mm-hmm.
1: Could you go, for any students potentially interested, could you go a little more into what your master's went into, what that entailed?
2: It entailed, um, there were about 15 students in the program, um, some very good uh, teachers on faculty and also adjuncting, Um, and it entailed a lot of reading, just reading Joan Didion or James Baldwin, David Foster Wallace, you know, just really reading great writers, having the time to do that, and having the time to sit around and discuss that with people who are themselves also um, very good writers. Um, And the thing that, you know, it's a master's degree, it's not a PhD, it's not a professional degree that guarantees you'll get employment. Uh, Many of my classmates did not go on to work um, full-time in journalism, but what it does do that you kind of need if you don't have this already is it, it introduces you to people that are already doing what you wanna do in the industry. You do meet professors that can give you contact with agents or editors and so, for someone like me, it was really like a crucial step to become a, a writer. I had a professor that took me under her wing and um, she got me my agent. And before I graduated, I had, um, I had sold, I had sold my, my first book um, to a publisher and, and I just don't see how I would have ever done that without the masters. So there was the program itself, but there was also the, the kind of um, professional connections that come out of a, of a graduate program that really were crucial. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense.
0: And so um, you mentioned that you started writing your book in graduate school. Was Mm -hmm. that, did that stem from some kind of assignment? Was that a lifelong goal that you already had on the side that just coincided with the mentorship that you were able to acquire in graduate school? Could you expand on that a little bit?
2: I I quickly realized during my first semester that I needed to um, get a book deal to to make the career work for me. I became obsessed with that idea that it seemed very hard to immediately get a job that would be... Um, self-sustaining so I just set my mind on um, on getting a book deal which I was ignorant enough not to know was extraordinarily difficult so I just um, I just tried to find a subject and one one in my second semester is a th- three semester program actually mm-hmm. so in my second semester I had a professor named Katie Roife who's a wonderful writer um, a really smart professor and she was teaching polemical writing, and so the assignment, there was an op-ed assignment, write an op-ed on something that you care about. And so, you know, I, I took that assignment very seriously. I went immediately to their library after she assigned it, and, um, and I wrote a piece that was like um, black culture in the era of hip-hop in the post-civil rights era isn't black culture, it's, it's, it's really overwhelmingly black street culture. And you know, I turned this assignment in, and she said, "Wow, that's you know, that's pretty good. You could probably get that published somewhere." And I, that blew my mind. And so, um, she gave me an email address at the New York Times. I sent it there. Um, the editor was pretty interested, but she said there wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't something in the news to to peg it to. So I just you know got tired of waiting for something to come up in the news, and I sent it to the Washington Post blind, and they published it, and it got a lot of, um, it got a lot of comments, uh, both negative and positive, and so I I kind of felt that maybe that could be my book. I had more to say. Um, It was a controversial subject, and so I said, you know, how do I get an agent? And and my professor put me in touch with an agent, and I took a semester off from school, and I went down to my brother's place in Florida at the time and just holed up, and for eight months, I wrote a proposal over the summer, and the semester I took off, and when I came back to school um, the following year, um, almost immediately the, the proposal went out and it went to auction. And and I had a deal um, in February of that year and graduated in May. So, I mean, looking back on it, that's I can't believe that. I mean, the only thing that really allowed me to do that was believing that I could. And the thing that really allowed me to believe that I could was not having like become jaded mm-hmm. in the industry enough to think that that was probably not possible because I hadn't really published anything by that point. Yeah,
1: that's pretty incredible. And your first book was a memoir. Mm -hmm. And did you notice any differences between what you would, the writing styles you were taught in your masters and how you had to kind of change that for writing a memoir?
2: Yeah, actually, um, I initially envisioned the book as a kind of essay and as a longer op ed, just kind of an argument. But what a lot of the feedback I was getting from editors uh, was based on was that, you know, um, every now and then, there's like a personal anecdote or something like that. And um, would you be interested in making this more of a memoir and making this more less of a um, of a polemic and more of a, of a of a blend between polemic and first-person writing? And I hadn't really considered that. We didn't really learn much, or I didn't take classes that were focused on first-person writing. But you know, that type of editorial direction made sense to me, and I could see how you could make an argument. Um, somehow more persuasively through personal experience and observation, sometimes you can, um, uh, it's more difficult to refute someone else's personal experience than it is to refute their argument. Um, And we just, you know, the way our brains work, we think through narratives. Uh, That's how human beings kind of um, engage with the world. And so, you know, I sat down and I I, I did that, and, and I liked also the result that came out of it. So I did have to shift focus from the way I was kind of Trained to write in my master's program, but it allowed me to kind of grow as a writer too. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you find that that kind of writing has really shaped the kind of projects that you take on now, or what kind of journalistic opportunities you decide to take on to fund a future for your family in Paris?
2: Actually, you know, it has. I mean, my second book, which is coming out in October, is in many ways another kind of blend between first person and and argument, and um, oftentimes in the reporting, I do um there is an element of the of the I in there too i i i I don't often keep myself completely removed from from the material um even in the criticism i do i often um find that i filter it through a kind of uh memoristic lens that uh that's become kind of a very comfortable mode of writing for me yeah and
1: in your first book, your memoir, you engage pretty critically with um, your childhood and the experiences you had then. And I imagine you're, you're providing a lot of information to the outside world. Do you ever have a trouble figuring out how much to include and what to include?
2: Well, the f- in the first book, I just was a little bit nervous because my father is a pretty private person. and um, He wouldn't have s- chosen memoirist probably as uh, as, as, as my... <laughs> as my role if he were picking. But, you know, I think that the writer's responsibility is really to, uh, to the truth as she sees it um, before even the responsibility is to um, the truth as the people she's writing about see it. Um, and so I think that when you do something and you have integrity and you really try to do it as well as possible, then the other people, uh, even, even people who wouldn't necessarily put themselves out there like that, they can get on board. And so uh, happily, my father did. Um, but it was difficult and choosing what to put in and what to take out is always, it's almost inescapably going to be self-serving in some ways, you know, um, you get to make yourself rounder than some people might think you're making them when you're, you know, when you're recalling experiences, you get to have an interiority that not everybody will have to the same degree. And so there's a, there's a degree of, there's always a degree of, um, necessary selfishness in a memoir, I guess, that, uh, that, is, that is probably always a little bit unfair, too.
0: <laughs> you mentioned earlier that getting to the truth of writing is one of the main focuses of writing itself, and it seemed like you did this in one of your pieces from 2015, Equal in Paris, in which you gave a controversial opinion at the time on the shooting of Charlie Hebdo, pointing to the ideals held in European beliefs around tradition they seem to believe that some things are meant to be tradition and shape the national identity despite potentially upholding systemic structures that oppress the weak and disenfranchised. So do you think that you need to be more controversial in order to illustrate the truth? Or instead, uh, there needs to be an emphasis on striking a chord with the readers for them to buy into the proposed
2: truth? Yeah, I know what you mean. I think that writers are kind of in always enthralled to their personality. And I think that um, my personality is such that I almost never want to write the argument that is the consensus view, for better or worse. I mean, there's a lot of good to be said with going with the consensus. But I always think if everybody's kind of agreed on an issue, then um, there might be something that we're overlooking. or. What could be interesting in an argument would be a counterintuitive point. The Charlie Hebdo article, actually, I think I was with the consensus, um, the American consensus. Yeah. But I was. I it was. Um, it would be a controversial point in France, where basically the liberal consensus is that Charlie Hebdo um, insults everyone, so it's kind of, it's kind of there's nothing wrong with it. But I never understood really the um, the appeal of that type of insulting of groups. Uh, Even the insulting of, you know, I I mean, they do an enormous amount of um, really vulgar insulting of like Jesus or something like that. And you could say that Catholics are the majority religion in France and so that's punching up. But it still seems, there's something unseemly about it. But there's something really unseemly about kind of punching down towards um, minorities, um, religious minorities who are already in many ways um, invisibilized in society and uh i don't know it just seemed to me that uh the main liberal argument for charlie hebdo was never fully convincing so in that way i was with the american consensus but i was but i I was kind of indulging this personality quirk which is that i had to be in disagreement with people (laughs) immediately around me (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. something i'd love to cover is your forthcoming book uh self-portrait in black and white and it's the story of excuse me it's the story of one American family's multi-generational transformation from what is called black to what is assumed to be white. In this book, you look more closely at how race is perceived and constructed. As the book discusses, having two white passing daughters force you to reconsider longstanding beliefs on how race operates in the world. Could you speak to that briefly?
2: Sure. Well, I have one. My, my firstborn is a, is, a, is a girl and my my baby now is, is a boy. So um, I think there's interesting gender differences that come into play, too, with, you know, It's slightly different to be a black man raising a white boy than it is even to be raising a white girl, uh, I think. Um, But this book um, really grew out of uh, an essay I made when I shelved the novel. Um, My daughter was born and (coughs) the kind of racial differences that had suddenly popped up in my family um, that I was forced to kind of confront that I hadn't confronted in my parents' home um, really drove home the point that Um, they really didn't make sense to me. The idea that my father was black and my daughter was white didn't really make sense to me. And it made me kind of question these divisions in the wider society too. I think that most people don't have to question these divisions because most people don't bump up against the porousness of race. But my daughter's birth really, I guess, thrust what I would call the fiction of race in my, Mm -hmm. in my face. And so I was kind of fascinated with, um, with this porousness and, uh, and so I wrote this essay, um, Black and Blue and Blonde, about her birth, and published that in the Virginia Quarterly Review, and then again realized that I really, um, I wanted to say more. And uh, the book took me about, I just finished it in February, it took me about four more years to really write, because I, the writing wasn't so difficult itself, but I kind of had to do a lot of living and and, exp- and, and being in this family to figure out exactly what mm-hmm. I was trying to say, and... Um, Towards the end of writing the book, I spent time for an assignment with the New York Times Magazine uh, where I was profiling um, an artist named Adrian Piper who is a black woman, both her parents are black, but she could pass for white if she chose to. And she's kind of done a lot of um, conceptual art and she's also an analytic philosopher and she's done a lot of writing about um, categorization. And she, uh, as an artwork, as a performative art piece, she retired from being black But also she's kind of serious about it and she she retired from race. And talking with her about this kind of clarified a few of the final thoughts for me Mm -hmm. and allowed me to finish the book and allowed me to also say that, you know, I also want to kind of step back, step out of the all-American skin game and and define myself and not be defined by categories that really come out of plantation slave logic, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I grew up my whole life believing... In the one drop rule which is really a kind of a, a, a terrible logic uh, when you start to think about it but you know which in the black community allowed for a lot of solidarity and a lot of good came out of it but ultimately I, I came to a point where I decided I'd rather w- also walk away from that kind of thinking and try to imagine a different way of of, of conceiving of myself and of others and of my children mm-hmm. it's not like I want to say I'm not black and now my children are white I want to say that those categories don't um, capture any of us at all, my, my family or, or yours, if, 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 you know, that's that's the argument I wanted to go and make in this book. And so we'll see how that goes over when it comes out.
1: That's fascinating. Um, the last question we ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success? And how would you help students define success for themselves?
2: I think that success is being able to feed yourself doing what you care about. And um what you're proud of, and if you're doing that, you're already really winning. Um, I think that students are oftentimes incentivized and pressured to measure success in terms of uh, money or in terms of jobs that other people um, profess to respect but that don't necessarily have something to do with what comes from within. So I think that um, really figuring out what it is that brings you meaning um, and figuring out how to monetize that, that's, that's, that's being successful definitely
0: and unfortunately that's all the time we have for today thank you mr williams for joining us and to all our listeners remember to stay hungry